Or I feel sometimes when I'm speaking on topics like finances or giving or things such as that, a bit like a kamikaze flight instructor who said to his students, you know, watch closely. I'm only going to show you this once. Um, and I've done this for three Sundays, a third here being the last. And we've actually taken these verses from Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And we're just looking at these verses and applying specifically to a very important need within our culture, within our families, within our world today. And that is the area of finances. Galatians 3 says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue. Or he, he did this great bailout for humanity from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In a world that's uh, spinning out of control with financial markets seeming to be in a free fall, record-breaking employment, foreclosures, and bankruptcies, the question has been, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Thomas Friedman, the author of The World is Flat, and he's the columnist for the New York Times, he writes a very interesting article just recently called Elvis Has Left the Mountain. He says, in its own unpredictable way, the Davis World Economic Forum usually serves as a crude barometer of the latest mood or mania on the world stage. This year, it didn't disappoint. What has struck me is the quiet urgency that infused so many panel discussions and private conversations here between investors and politicians and social activists. See, at this World Economic Forum, some of the brightest and best and, and, and most gifted CEOs and financial analysts and all the rest come together. And he writes, to put it crudely, everyone is looking for the guy. Guy who can tell you exactly what ails the world's financial system. Exactly how we get out of this mess and exactly what you should be doing to protect your savings. But here's what's really scary. The guy isn't here. He's left the building. Elvis has left the mountain. Get used to it. What do I mean? First, if it's not apparent to you yet, it will be soon. There is no magic bullet for this economic crisis, no magic bailout package, no magic stimulus. We have woven such a tangled financial mess with subprime mortgages wrapped in complex bonds and derivatives pumped up with leverage and then globalized to the far corners of the earth that much as we want to think this will soon be over, that is highly unlikely, writes Friedman. Here's the scary part, he says. Everyone at this conference and throughout the world is looking for the guy, and the guy isn't here. The guy who can tell you what exactly is ailing this world has left the building. And here's my question to you. Do you really believe the guy has left? Do you believe that there isn't still someone who can make sense of all of this? And let me pose a different question, I think a very important question in the midst of all this. How will we live in light of this? How will you 
as a parent? How are you as a single adult? How are you as a grandparent? How are you in every different place that we could think about with regard to um, your relation to this world? How will you live in light of what is going on? It's interesting. Jesus called his 12 disciples together at one point just before he was going to send them out on a mission. It's going to be found in Matthew 10. And he pulls them together and he basically gives them their marching orders. And in this, he says to them, go out and preach this. Go tell everyone this. In the midst of the world condition that he was living in, with this incredible political upheaval that was, was taking place, there was so much fear that at some point the Romans would come through at the slightest agitation of any Jewish uprising. And he goes, go out and I want you to, to preach this. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then he makes this little statement, freely you have received, freely give. And you have to tie, the kingdom of heaven is near, with this statement, freely you have received, so now freely go out and give as you live. Live generously. Don't forget. What you need to remember, he says, is that, the, that God's kingdom is, is here. The resources of heaven are available. And in fact, he says, it's actually right next to you. It's just an arm's length away. If you could just pull back the physical curtain, God has the ability to take those resources or any resources, any place he wants to, and make them available to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the guy hasn't left the building? The guy is still in charge. And that's what he's basically saying. He says, do you believe that God is present? Do you believe that he's available? Do you believe that he's near? Do you believe that you don't have to hold so tightly the things that you want or that you have? That when God says release them and live in this way freely as you have given, been given and, and you've received freely give, that you can release your grip knowing God's still here. He's still available. And the key question I, I want us to consider is, how will we respond in this time? When things are tight, do we just get tighter still? Will we start to hoard? Will we become stingy? Will we switch to our default mode, our, our fallback position, so that when times are tough, we got to really hunker down and take care of ourselves? Or do we answer this question differently and say, when times are tough, we really believe there is a God who is who's right there, who is present, who is available, who is just next to us, an arm's length away, who is available with the resources of heaven so that we can live as if it's still all right here. That we can live knowing that there's a God who gives generously. We can live with the sense of trust that in the tough times reveals true character. It's almost like in this time, God can be looking at you and saying, what are you made of? It's really easy to live in this way and to trust me that I'm going to provide and protect and care for you all through this other time. But when it got tough, what's it like now for you? I just think it's wonderful that God at times challenges us and says, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you in this tough time how to still live the way you lived with regard to being generous. I'm not saying irresponsible. We spent two weeks on talking about living responsibly. 
That's exactly what God calls us to do, but he also calls us to live and to give generously. We've talked about this, and, and when Jesus sent his 12 out with hardly anything, he said, freely you receive, so freely give. Believe that this guy is still readily available to provide. You know, the fear of lack, this desire for hoarding, starts really young in our lives, right? It starts when you're really little, when you go mine, when someone wants to take the toy, right? Or you hear no, and primal screams from that little two-year-old that is such... You go, where did that come from? You know, in the past five years, you know, one of the fastest growing businesses have been building storage units. You see them popping up all over the place. We just don't have enough stuff, enough places for our stuff at our home. So we actually have to go out to a place off site to store it. Our businesses don't have enough place to store stuff. So we buy actual storage condominiums. And in these kind of times when we are in this mode to want to protect, we really need to remember, some of you remember Sesame Street? At least for me when my kids were little, I remember a lot of times I think some of the things they did weren't for the kids but for the adults. And they capitalized on this human condition of hoarding. And, and they were talking to little two-year-olds, I think, at the time. And Big Bird had a famous song. Do you remember that song? It went something like, Sharing is what good friends do. Whatever I have, you can have some too. Yeah, sign me up for the choir. But anyway. <laughs> well aware of this, the Word of God. Jesus, Paul, throughout the Old Testament says... I want you to live knowing that the guy is still here. The guy is readily available to be able to give. So I want you to live responsibly and I want you to give generously. I want you to give generously. I want you to live this way before the Lord. And I want to share this, this whole idea of sharing and, and this giving generously concept from the life of David. He found among his own men who he had been living with for a number of years, just what I call grabbing to get fear-driven attitude within his own ranks of trying to hold on to those things which they thought that they got because times were tight and they thought they were the ones who worked for it, so they deserved it, so I'm going to hold on to it because it's mine. And so to a bunch of grown men, David challenged their selfish mind, their primal scream, and David said to them at one point, Look, guys, all will share alike. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 16 through 25, it begins in verse 16, and it talks about this Egyptian slave who had been with this Amalekite raiding party, and it says that, they, that this guy led David down, and there the Amalekite raiders had been scattered over the countryside. They were eating and drinking and reveling because of this great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines. And from Judah, they had actually come through when David was away and they they took all the, the women and the children, their wives and all the stuff that they had. They took this plunder and they burned that place of Ziklag and they left it and they took it all while David and the men were off. And David, it says in verse 17, fought them from dusk until evening until the next day. And none of them got away except for 400 young men who rode off in camels and they fled. And David recovered everything from the Amalekites. 
that had been taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. They didn't just get their stuff. They got all the other stuff as well. And they brought this huge horde of stuff back home. And then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bessar Ravine. And they came out to meet David and the people with him. And as David and his men, those 400 who had done the plundering, approached them, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. So go ahead, take your kids, take your wives, but you don't get any of the plunder. And David replies, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed us over to us, the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. And then he says, all will share alike. And David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this day. What would cause David to make this statement? And beyond that, what would cause him to set it down as a statute and an ordinance? For all God's people from this day, 1100 B.C. or so, to this day, February 8th, 2009. Simply, David had learned a profound truth. He had understood what some understand like the law of gravity or Newton's second law of physics, you know, F equals MA. Or if someone might understand with regard to the theory of relativity, he understood the law of what I call generosity. All will share alike. And here's the simple truth that's behind this law. Here's the simple idea behind what it means to live by this law of generosity, even in difficult and tough times. It's really pretty basic. It's this, what I have is not mine, but God's. What I hold on to is not mine, but God's. What God places in my hands is not mine to grab, but mine to hold loosely because it's been given by God. To understand this, you need to really understand the background of the story a little bit better of David and these men. You have to understand, if you go back to, to actually First Samuel chapter 30, it, it actually it precedes that. You have to understand that David at this point has been running in the wilderness. He has been running away for Saul, from Saul. He has been told he would be king, but now for some reason Saul is running after him, trying to take his life. And, and, and David, even though he's been given these many promises, and even Saul himself says that someday you'll be king, David is running in the wilderness. He's scared to death. He has two opportunities to kill King Saul. His men at one point, the very second one that occurs just before chapter 30, here he is. David goes into the camp where Saul is, and the men are asleep. His bodyguards are around Saul. God, it says, put them in such a deep sleep that David was actually able to come in. He took his spear and his water jug, and at one time, Abishai turns to him, and he says, as they're kind of a little bit away, he whispers, he says, let me kill him. It will only take one thrust of the spear. And David says, don't touch God's anointed. 
They grab that water jug and they grab that spear. They go off to the side and they stand there and they call out. And Saul is all repentant, says he's sorry, but David doesn't trust him. And then it says at the end of that point, when, when Saul begins, he leaves to go away. It says the very next chapter, the very next verse, you've got to keep them connected. It says this, that David thought to himself, someday, someday, Saul's going to kill me. Who cares? I've heard the promise. God said he would do this. He would provide. He'd care for me. But he thinks to himself, like we all do when we come into difficult times. I don't think God's really here. I wonder if he really cares about me. I wonder if that promise is really going to happen. I wonder if he'll really provide. And so he hits his low. And David decides to do what many of us do in those difficult low times we don't hear any longer and believe or trust that, that the guy is still in the house. He hasn't really left. The promise is still there. We, we, we forget the fact that it's only an arm length away, that the kingdom of God is near. And David does what we all seem to do at times. He decides to go off and do things on his own. He says, you know, I don't know if I can continue to do this. So he leaves the area that God had told him to be, which was in Judah. And he goes into Philistine country because he knows if he goes there, he'll escape the hand of Saul, which he does, but puts him into the hands of the Philistines, which isn't really so great as well. So he has to live this tension where he lives this duplicitous life. He's at this point, the integrity in his life, he's just cut down the middle. He's living with this Philistine king and he's reporting to him the things that he's doing. He's been given this town called Ziklag. He goes out and he he, he raids the different people. He tells the Philistine king that he's actually raiding not just all these other people, but he's raiding Judah. So the Philistine king thinks, well, yep, you know what? He's become such a stench in in the nostrils of those of Israel. He'll never go back there. He's mine forever. He's mine for good. And he's forcing his men to live a lie. He stepped out of the plan of God and he's... Hit this new low. He almost ends up in chapter 29 fighting his own people. The king says, you know what? We're going against Israelites. We're going against Saul and, and all of them. I want you to come with me. So he puts him into the army. He puts him at the very back as they're about to march against Israel. The, king, the kings of Philistine, these tribal leaders say, hey, look it. We know this, David. We've heard about this, David. You know what? If he goes with us and we start to fight... If he turns against us and he's behind us, he'll slaughter us. They'll have us from both ways. What a better way to get back into your king, into your kingdom. We don't want him to go. So this friend, this tribal leader of David's, who's a Philistine, comes to him and says, look, you can't come, you can't go. So David and his men begin to return. They go back to the city of Ziklag, where they have left their families unprotected. And it says, they come back. Chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. It's a three-day journey. They're exhausted. Chapter 30, verses 3 through 5. The men come back, they're crushed. They wept aloud until they had no strength. When they came back and found the city burned and raised the children and women taken, they don't even know if they're alive. They, they wept aloud until they had no strength. They've, they've walked for three days to get back. They come back, they see everything they've ever tried to preserve and protect gone from their hands. And then it says in verse 6, they were so embittered in their heart, they were so angry with David, they wanted to stone him. <laughs> Unbelievable. After a series of bad choices. Ever been, you ever done that? A series of bad choices? What do you do after a series of bad choices? 
If you are this morning in that place and, and you're saying, yeah, I've made a series of bad choices. I just want to encourage you to do what David did. I love it. It says that David in his pain, exhausted, crushed, and bitter. Verse 6 says, but David, and I love that, but David, it'll happen twice in this passage. But David found strength in the Lord his God. He turned to God. And then about a verse later, the next thing you see is that David inquired of God. Not only did he turn to God, he actually inquired. He, 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 he asked God. He said, God, what should I do at this point? My men want to kill me. We're exhausted. And God speaks to his heart and says, pursue them. You will overtake them and you will be successful. God gives him another promise. So David goes to starts to pursue him. And at this point in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter, he hits his lowest low. Because as they start to pursue him, he has 600 good fighting men who are exhausted, who are bitter, who, are, who are, have wept themselves to no strength. And the 600 begin to take off. And at a certain point in their journey, 200 of them are so exhausted they can't go on. So he's now down to 400. He's chasing an enemy that he doesn't know where they've gone. It's like chasing, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. He's at his lowest of lowest points. And I can imagine any time when a person, as he did, he turns to God, God speaks to his heart, and you start to head out, and you think everything's going to turn around and be rosy. Let me share with you, when you turn to God, it doesn't necessarily always turn around and become rosy right away. There is still a a pushing after, a learning to trust, a learning to put your hand into God's hand, a, a step of faith. So he comes to this place, 200 of them are exhausted, and he does what he what what he... What any person, as they hear the promise of God, needs to do, he continued to pursue. He said to the 400, let's keep going. As they went a little bit further, God intervenes. God intervenes. But David and 400 men continued to pursue. God leaves an Egyptian slave who was a part of the a part of that Amalekite party who had gotten ill three days before. They leave him to die. They don't kill him. They leave him to die in the wilderness, in the desert. So happens that David and the 400 stumble upon him. They start talking to him. And the guy shares with him, I can tell you exactly where they go. This is really good fortune, is it not? He just asked, would you just do one thing? Please don't turn me back to my master. So David takes it with this guy to restore him. He, he eats and he's, he's well and they, he leads him exactly to the party. And here's what's really cool. They come upon the party of this raiding group of people and guess what they're doing? They're having a party. They're drinking and reveling and, in, and they're, they're imbibing and, and, and they're at this point where they're not even prepared. God sets them up for 400 exhausted men. Gives these 400 men the strength from dusk to the next evening when the sun sets to fight them and they win and they win it all. And these guys are going, yeah, we're pretty good fighters. They overtake them and the 400 get victory. In the moment they turned to God, things began to change. This is so God's work. Four times we read in chapters 30 
verses 17, verse 18, and verse 19, twice in verse 19. None of them got away. David recovered everything from the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing. David brought everything back. That is so cool, isn't it? Note verse 20, though. It says, David took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove ahead of the other livestock saying, now catch this, because it is such a human response. These 400 guys are driving all the plunder ahead of them They're with their wives and children. And it says, as they're walking along, they're saying, this is David's plunder. And I think David's going, oh, you guys, it's not mine. And it gets even worse if you look at verses 21 and 22. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at Besor the ravine. So he comes to the 200 exhausted guys. Now they're, they're refreshed. They come out to meet David and the people with him. And they're excited as David and his men approach. He greets them. And, but there's some evil men and some troublemakers among David's followers. And they say, because they didn't go out with us, we won't share with them the plunder we've recovered. However, each man, go ahead, you can take your wife and children. We'll be really generous. And now note David's words. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has what? Given us. He's protected us. He's handed over to us the forces that came against us. In a sense, David is saying, don't you understand the law of generosity? Haven't you learned the lesson of Big Bird in Sesame Street? Do you really think that this is my plunder? Do you really think that in some way you had enough strength to make the fight to win? Do you really think you somehow got the victory? Do you really believe that you could have found them on your own? Who do you think led you there? Who do you think left the Egyptian behind? Who do you think allowed the Egyptian to get seriously ill? Who do you think worked in the man's heart not to put him to death? Who do you think was behind the perfect timing that when we came up on this group, they were, I mean, they were bombed. Isn't this God's plunder? Didn't God give you the abilities? Didn't God direct your path? And how about us? Yeah, things are tight. It's worse than probably you've ever saw in anyone's lifetime here. I know there's people in the 30s who can tell you it was worse. It, it was, too. But I guess the question, again, is what's in our hearts? What do we really believe? Who, who do we really believe is, is running this whole thing? Right? Honestly, Look deep into your own heart right now. Do you really believe that God is in control? Do you believe, if you have lost your job, do you believe that God doesn't see that and know that, and that God isn't still working as you work with him and cooperate with him, that he will not lead you to what he has because he promises he'll provide? You know, we all joke about those 401s going down to 101s. I mean, do you believe that God's going to let you suffer in your old age? How are we going to live differently than the world around us who is scared to death, in a panic, grabbing hold of things, hoarding as closely to their chest they can the things that they have? Are we going to begin to, as we've talked about, live responsibly, 
and give generously. Because we believe that there's a thin curtain, that God is there, He's still in charge, and the kingdom is near, and He gave us this message. He said, go ahead, heal the sick, because if I lay on your heart to pray for someone, it may be that I want to heal that person because I have a gift available to give to that person. Go ahead, He says, raise the dead, take those, those people, even to the point where there is no hope, and lift their hearts and spirits, and, and maybe even really raise someone from the dead. Is that possible? Cleanse the leper, those who feel so outcast, those who are so pushed away. Use the resources of God to bring them back in, to let them know that they're loved. Drive out demons. Yes, take those evil spirits that seek to control the heart, that bring about stinginess, that bring about a self-absorbed life, and begin to move them out by the power and the Word of God. And do it because you have been one who is received by the free hand of God. So with a free hand, give. Because the truth is what you have is not your own, and what you have and enjoy has been given to you by God, and all that we have is His, and everything comes from His hand, and nothing is ours that He Himself hasn't given us. There's just five implications that I want to share with you with regard to this truth. David makes a statement in verse 25, because this is so important to his people. He says, I am going to make this a statute and an ordinance from, for Israel from this day to the end of eternity. And the statute is a, is a law enacted by a legislature or a lawmaking body. It's basically, here's the policy for God's people. Live responsibly and give generously not only the policy for God's people, it's to be a practice. It's something, it says, verse 25, an ordinance. The word ordinance comes from the word ordinary. It's the idea of common, regular, daily. It's something you do often, consistently. Not only is it a policy, it is a practice. You know that whole idea when you play the piano, practice makes perfect? The reason you do something daily, consistently, the reason you do something week to week, the reason you take each pay period and you set aside some and you say, God, this is yours, I'm going to give this to you, The reason you do that is because what it does, it fights against the stinginess. It fights against our lack of faith of this God will provide. It causes us to begin to see our character form, just like a person playing the piano gets better at it, hopefully. As you give with your heart and listen to the leading of the Spirit of God and you do it consistently, He begins to form within your character that you might become like His Son, Jesus. And I want to share with you, folks, giving is something you just don't do once in a while. It is intentional. It is a practice. I want to speak to you as a congregation. It is something that becomes a policy, a way of life, a practice that every pay period you set aside a portion of it. You say, God, this is for you. This is yours. Not only that, it's a priority. The word ordinance is also similar in its its root word is the word ordinal. Anybody know what an ordinal is, an ordinal number? It's the first of a set. Sharing, says David, is not only a policy for my people, something to be practiced regularly, it is also a priority that I want you to set aside. It's of great importance to me, God says, because it's at the heart of what my character is. It is not to be the last thing you think of. 
You know, we got so much money. Maybe we get, maybe I can give it a couple dollars. I remember hearing this joke. It's kind of a stupid one, but um, these two bills, a dollar bill and a hundred bill, are you know ready to get thrown into the incinerator. Hundred dollar bill looks, no dollar bill. And goes, man, what a life! Unbelievable. Best restaurants, nicest five star hotels. It's unbelievable. I've been to some most exotic, wonderful places around the world. And one dollar bill is just looking at him. He goes, what about you, bud? He goes, to church, to church, to church, to church, to church. Anyway. Um, I told you it was stupid. Uh, it's not a priority. It's also to be a, it's a, it's a present. This isn't a bill or a debt. I love what David does here. He, he, he sees this giving away some of the plunder as a present. Verse 26 through 30, he says, When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here's a present for you from the plunder, the Lord's enemy. He begins by those closest to him. He starts with the circle of where ministry has happened in his life. He doesn't look for some ministry. Well, he looks for those who have ministered in his life, those who are his friends, those who are close to him. He, he gives to those in Judah. Then it goes on and he says, he even gives beyond that. He sent it to those who were in Bethel and, and Ramoth Negev and Jatir, and he goes on and names all these different places till finally he says in verse 31, into those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed, where he had received help, where he was giving back to those who had helped him. He was going to give a present away. Because people had allowed for him to live in certain areas at certain times, and with him and his army would at times take things from the fields, and, and they would say, go ahead, help yourself to some of the grain or whatever it is. And, and they would live there, and David was in a sense saying, I want to give back to you as a present. And, and when, we, when we take this and we say, God, I'm going to live and give generously, I'm, I'm going to put this in your hands, God, we're, we're basically saying, God, I'm going to give this to you so that you can touch other people's lives like you've touched mine. And the last is it's a percentage. David gave a percentage. He didn't give it all away. He just gave a percentage. And here's something interesting. This, is, this usually gives people um, nosebleeds because it seems so high. He says 10% in the Old Testament. Set aside a percentage, 10% of what you earn. And give it back to God and to others so you can bless those. Last week I said then save 10%. And then I said... You know, live on the 80% and enjoy life's blessings in my, my daughters. You know, it's kind of bad sometimes to have your daughters in the services. So afterwards, she goes, I have some questions for you. Where in the Bible it says live on 80%? Yeah, it doesn't really say that. Because God may call you to live on 50 or 30, depending on what God's given you. Old Testament treats us like children. The children of Israel. It's again, again, the children of Israel. And think about it for a second. The Ten Commandments. You think about the Ten Commandments. They're the bare minimums of a civilized society. Think about it for a second. God's not laying out these real tough things to do. He's laying out the bare minimums that keeps us civil. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't take another person's wife or husband. I mean, these aren't biggies. They're bare minimums. Jesus comes along and raises the bar. So when we look at the Old Testament, I have people say, you know, the New Testament doesn't say anything about giving. Oh, don't go there. 
Because the Old Testament speaks to us as children, it says 10%. The New Testament says give wildly, extravagantly, hilariously, with all that you can, because this God is, is so given to you and so freely given. There isn't a 10% rule anymore. It's not about rules, it's about love. It's about living out of your heart and giving as God has given to you. I, I, I look at the 10% and you go, whoa, that's high. I, if, if you have not given anything and, you're given, and you go, I'm going to take a real risk and go 3%, or if you've given 5 and you can say, I'm going to go 7 I just challenge you to think about raising that a little bit, testing God and seeing if you won't be faithful in your life, even in this difficult time. Because <laughs> I, I think of the bare minimums. God just loves to cause us to grow up from being children to adults. When my kids were little, I would tell them, you've got to take a bath at least, or a shower at least once a week. Right? That's not like way out there extreme, is it? You're just hoping the smelly little kid will get clean once a week. The value is what? Not to get them to do it once, but they'll understand what cleanliness is all about. So that by high school, you want them not in the shower five times a day, Right? They get the value. That's why the Lord says, you know, give a, give a percentage. Figure it out. If you can only give me 1% with a generous heart, then start there. But do it. And trust God that he's still in the house. Friedman said, the guy isn't here. The guy who can tell you exactly what ails the world has left the building but do you believe the guy's left? The kingdom of heaven is near, right here. God is still sitting in the chair. He's in authority. So I'm going to challenge us as a church, both individually and corporately, to test what it says in Malachi chapter 3, where it says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. And then note this, God says he will even work supernaturally on his people's behalf. He says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, inflation, and the vines in your field will not cast their fruit. They'll yield percentage growth, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. So the challenge these last three weeks, and we're done with this series, little mini thing within Galatians is this, live responsibly. And give generously, knowing that the guy is just an arm's length away. And if you're willing to let go when God prompts your heart to do so, and you do so out of faithfulness and obedience, he will provide. He may not, I, he may not right away. I had a guy one time when I preached years ago on something like this. He came up and goes, you know, I tried it for a few weeks and nothing happened. I didn't get anything. That's like David going along pursue him and you'll overcome him and you'll be victorious and he starts out and 200 um, of his guys are so exhausted he can't go on he goes oh god he tried too bad if you've never tithed i just want you to think about giving something to the lord and if you're at a certain point i want you to think about what does it mean for you to become more generous maybe for years you've just done the same thing and, and you need to even learn what it means to become more generous as a church there's a few things we're going to be doing that aren't about money <laughs> One of them is serving dinners through Interfaith at one of the low-income housing units or places around here. It's called the Connect Program, and we'll hear more about it next week. If you're interested in being a part of serving and giving in that way, 
um, there's a time to, to t- hear about it. At 10.45, I think it is, or so next week. Um, look for that. There's a food share coming up March 9th and 15th where we're going to give food to the Interfaith Outreach Shelf. There's a blood drive. There's a way to give generously. I'm going to ask us to stand and just pray. Father, there's just this basic, simple truth. All will share alike. Sharing is what good friends do. It's what's in the heart of one who has been made good because of the goodness of God. I just pray for our body. I pray individually for myself. I pray for others, God, that we would so believe that you're right next to us, that the kingdom is available. It's just an arm's length away, and you can dish out resources Teach us to live by the promptings of your spirit and teach us to live obediently, generous lives for the sake of others, God. In Christ's name, amen.